Kingdom Kids at this time, those uh, children ages four to nine, uh, we have a teacher that is in the foyer going to take you across the street to our Christian Education Center, and our parents, your parents, are going to pick you up right after the service. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel 7 will be our text this morning. It's always good to have the word open in front of you. It, you know, you can just check to make sure I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is really from the book. That's, I mean, that's uh, tr- genuinely, uh, that's where any power or authority comes from is God's word, not mine. So you want to make sure that what I'm saying lines up. Uh, have it open in front of you, and uh, we'll get into that in just a moment. First, though, I wonder if you've ever been to a birthday party. Of course, you've been to a birthday party. Have you ever been to a birthday party when uh, somebody started the song, Too High? Happy birthday to you. Okay, that's all right. Then, happy birthday to you. Okay, wow. Happy birthday, dear. Like, okay, all right, that's over. We can, let's get the cake. That's, we're, we're okay. Uh, when real musicians take a piece of music into a different key to suit a particular singer or instrument, they have to transpose it. That's the technical term. You're, you're moving all the notes. That's transposition. Moving all the notes, but it's still the same song. Same shape to the melody, same blend of the harmony. It's the same song. Uh, when we read the Old Testament, as we are with First Samuel, and really all of the Bible that comes before Jesus, we have to do some transposing to get it into a, a key that you and I can sing. Ancient Israel had a very different culture. It was a very different time, not only in history, but also in God's unfolding plan of redemption. In so many ways, it is the same song of salvation, the same melody, but for us, we have to move it from the key of, shall we say, from the key of Samuel to the key of Christ. And we've been doing that already in this series. But you, you, could, you could say then, if that's the case, if we have to do this, this work of transposition, why are we even reading Samuel? Why not just read the New Testament? Because... I believe hearing the gospel in a different key will help us appreciate our salvation in new ways. There's something for us specifically here in these Old Testament books. The theme for this morning's sermon then should sound like a familiar song. God has shown us the way to be saved through the one he has sent. God has shown us the way to be saved through the one he has sent. In our text, the the one God has sent to bring salvation to his people is Samuel. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we haven't seen much of him. Chapters 4 to 6, Israel was defeated by their powerful enemies, the Philistines, but the Lord was not defeated. He showed his power and authority over the Philistine god, Dagon, over the Philistine leaders, the five lords of the five cities, and, and he showed his power and authority even over presumptuous Israelites. Because, as we said, the Lord is not to be taken lightly. There's a a weightiness to him. He is glory. So, 
Some of these Israelites then, because God was even coming down hard, coming down heavy on these presumptuous Israelites, some of, some of them were saying, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That was the end of chapter 6. And the answer is no one. In, 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 uh, on our own, no one can stand before this holy God. And so, I mean, it, it sounds like there's no hope. It sounds like the relationship between God and his, even His chosen people is over. But in this chapter, God sends Samuel to bring His people back. So, let's just read these first four verses of 1 Samuel 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord, the ark of the covenant, that had been in Philistine land and had come back. They took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then Put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. This is part one of three where Samuel shows us the way to be saved. Part one is repentance. Repentance, return to this holy God, being no longer divided, but fully devoted. The Bible often speaks of the relationship between himself and, or between God and his people, like a husband and wife in covenant relationship. But in this period of Israel's history, it's as if, well, God and Israel, they're, they're living under the same roof, but they're not speaking to each other. There's no connection. It's not, not all nice and sweet there between them. But here in verse 2, 20 years after the Ark of the Covenant had returned to Israel, there are some signs of a thaw. All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, that's good, but it's still a little unclear. And you can tell by how Samuel begins there in verse 3. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. He says, if, because it is possible to lament, it is possible to be sad, it's possible to feel sorry in a way that's not genuine. You know all the cliches, right? The kid that's caught with his hand in the cookie jar or the politician caught with his pants down. And they may shed a lot of tears, but you can't help wondering, are they sorry just because they got caught? Or, closer to this situation, in a strained relationship, one spouse might wish for a return to physical intimacy, but they aren't ready to deal with the issue that created the chill in the bedroom. Oh, you, you might want to be back together, but do you want to do what it takes? So Samuel makes it very clear what is necessary for genuine returning, genuine repentance. Put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you. Next verse mentions the Baals and the Asheroth. Both are plural. 
words, Baals, referring to the male Canaanite gods, the Ashtaroth, their female goddesses. Um, so that's some definition, but, but what should be shocking, startling to us, you're like, what? There are many Israelites worshiping Canaanite gods? What is going on here? Like I said, the Lord has not been the problem in the, the relationship. Uh, let's, let's take a moment to think, though, carefully about this idolatry. Don't, don't think of it as merely breaking some of God's rules for religion. Of course, Ten Commandments, you shall have no other God before me, you shall not make any graven or carved images. Okay, yes, breaking the rules of religion, but fundamentally, idolatry is about a divided loyalty, or worse, an infidelity. And, and while, praise God, it is possible for relationships to be restored after infidelity, it cannot happen unless the unfaithful partner recommits exclusively to their one and only first love. Otherwise, we're just playing games. You, you want to say, like, oh, I'm sorry, Let's, can, we, can we patch things up? Oh, but, I, but you're not going to get rid of that compromised relationship? You're not going to get rid of, of that, that other interest that you have? Come on, it's not real. It's not, it's not gonna, reconciliation is not going to happen. Look at the second part of verse 3 there. Well, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. Put away Direct, serve. Now, I've been leaning on the metaphor of marriage for this relationship, but it's also like a king and his loyal subjects, or a master and his faithful servants. Samuel asks, who are you going to serve? In other words, whose orders are you following in life? Who or what gets your time and your attention and your energy? When you decide what you're going to do with yourself when you get up in the morning or what you're going to do with the next five years of your life, who gets to decide that for you? Is it you or is it the Lord? Is it your ambition? Is it, is it your uh, parents or is it the, the, the pressure of your peers around you? Who calls the shots? In an earlier generation, Joshua had said to the people of Israel, this is Joshua 24, 14 and 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, finish it with me, we will serve the Lord. Like Joshua before him, Samuel is drawing a line in the sand. Which side are you on? Are you with the Lord or not? And there is only one way to return to the Lord for real. Put away the foreign gods, direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only. Now, it's not hard to transpose this to a New Testament key. After a long period of silence... God sent his only son into the world, but he came, notice, with the same message, repent. Matthew 4, check me on it. It wasn't just 
John the Baptist, Jesus takes up the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, also said, Jesus, no one can serve two masters. The question is for us, will we turn from our sin and turn to the Lord alone? I wonder if you came here today lamenting after the Lord, to use the language of uh, for Samuel 7, verse 2. If you come today lamenting after the Lord, uh, have you come here hoping, well, I feel really bad, but maybe, maybe God can help. Uh, my life is a mess, my job is a pain, my credit cards are maxed out, my family won't talk to me. Or, or you look at the, the wider world, you say, oh my goodness, war and earthquakes and droughts, the, the culture's a cesspool, the, too many in, in politics and media are, are lying. We, we, we need God. We need somebody to fix this. Oh, Lord, deliver us. And hey, I understand why you, why you feel that, why you're looking for help. But the question that this passage poses to us is that are we really returning to the Lord with all our heart or do we just want him to fix things for us? 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, for godly grief, we could say like this passage, this lamenting, is it real lamenting? Well, godly grief, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, just like, oh, you know, I'm just sorry I got caught, or God, would you, I don't want to change, but would you fix things for me? That worldly grief produces death. Godly grief leads to repentance and salvation. Worldly grief death. So, if, as Samuel says, if you are returning to the Lord in genuine repentance, are you ready to put away anything that divides your loyalties, anything that rivals the Lord for your heart? Will you put away anything that you have given your devoted service to? We, we think we're, well, we're more sophisticated than those ancient cultures. We, we don't set up idols of wood or stone or statues of gold, but it's really not all that different. And you, you've heard sermons like this, I know, and you're maybe out there, you're like, okay, preacher, I know what you're going to say next. Our idols are like money or whatever. Well, here's why that's not just a, a, a nifty move by a preacher to kind of, well, we've got to get something from this passage. Um, you know, we'll, we'll try this transposition, transposition thing. It's not just a nifty move to make an old Bible relevant today. See, those ancient cultures worshipped those gods, not just because they were superstitious and they, they saw spirits everywhere. They, those ancient cultures worshipped those gods because they believed the gods had the power and the control over things like fertility like whether you would have children or not, or whether your crops would be plentiful or not. They, the gods they believed had power over the weather, which of course affected the crops, but also just think of weather as something dangerous, uh, or the power of these gods over military battles. So, so these gods can, can give you what you need. They, they're they're going to provide for you. They're going to bless you. They're going to prosper you. They're going to keep you safe. We may have skipped the statues. We think we've outgrown the gods, but our hearts are still 
directed at whatever we think will give us more power, will make us more attractive, will make us more prosperous, will make us more comfortable. We're, we're inclined to be seduced by our own technology that promises to make us like gods when we can have all the knowledge and all wisdom and be everywhere present at once and have all power with just a few taps. Amazing. But these gods cannot save us. Samuel asks us, are you ready to return to this holy God? There's more for us to see in Israel's return here in this chapter, so let's see how that results then in their rescue. So verse 5. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. This is part two. Reliance. How does Samuel show us the way to be saved? Own your sin and trust the one who appeals to God on your behalf. Own your sin and trust the one who appeals to God on your behalf. So verse 3 had said that, that Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel. Uh, in the previous section that we looked at. It was probably something of a sort of cross-country preaching tour because it's not until this time that he calls everyone together for a ceremony, apparently to renew the covenant relationship with God as a people. Now, I've known couples who have renewed their vows, maybe at a special anniversary, you know, a happy time. I've also known couples renew their vows after a particularly difficult time when, they, when it seemed that they may have, they almost uh, split up. This is closer to that kind of renewing of the vows. Everything that Israel does communicates a real desire for reconciliation. This act of pouring out water on the ground is not a sacrifice exactly, but it seems to go along with their fasting. We're, we're foregoing food. We are giving up. We're not even drinking water. It says we, 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 we are so just torn up inside. That that's not going to satisfy us right now. That's not going to make us happy. This is not a time for feasting and celebrating. This is a time for mourning. We're, we're here to deal with our sin. See, there's just, there's just one recorded statement from the people here which is a confession. We have sinned against the Lord. Now, I hope you understand this is true for any relationship. I've been leaning on the marriage thing, but there's any relationship, any friendship. If you have broken trust, 
if you have caused a rift in the relationship, the first thing to do is to take responsibility for the wrong that you have done. Uh, maybe this is like, yeah, I already know that, but just it needs to be said. It needs to be heard. It needs to be learned. Don't think you're going to patch things up by saying something like, well, you know, I'm sorry if what I said offended you. Now, has, have, have, has somebody said that to you? Did it, did it fly? Have you, I hope you haven't tried using that one. This is how you do it. I was wrong when I said that to you. Uh, get more specific. Um, I was being overly critical. I, I know I was belittling. And you're not informing that person. They already know it. What, what you're doing is you're saying, I get why you're hurt. I am acknowledging that what I did was wrong. So I, I was, I, when I said that, I was, I was overly critical. I was belittling. It was hurtful to you. I know I shouldn't have said that. Maybe even just the encouragement of this passage would, 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 would press us to go a little bit further. I know, it, I know it feels weird to say it, but what if you took it a little bit further beyond, I was wrong, I shouldn't have said that. I know when I said that, I sinned against you. Let me tell you, it, it, if you haven't tried that, that feels really hard to say. I mean, it's, it's hard to say I was wrong. It's really hard to say. It feels really weird to say, I, I sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? But folks, it is powerful. And if it's true, it should be said. Confession of sin is not a silver bullet for reconciliation. It's not going to automatically say the right things, but understand confession of sin can, well, let me put it this way. If, if the other person can't believe that you recognize your own wrongs, they are not going to trust you and move forward to renew that relationship. And I can't blame them for that because you're saying nothing has changed. If you don't know what the problem is, we can't fix it. But, the end, but, but here, thankfully, God's people are acknowledging, they are being very clear with their confession, their admission of guilt. We have sinned against the Lord. And then the end of verse 6 says, and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah, there where they were meeting. Now, typically that meant, when it says Samuel, somebody judged the people of Israel, it meant they were acting effectively as the justice department, uh, settling disputes between people and so on. You know, uh, somebody's coming to Samuel, hey, uh, his cow knocked over my fence, or, you know, this shopkeeper, you know, ripped me off, and, and Samuel's sorting that out. Now, saying Samuel, at, at this moment in the text, when it says Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah, Mizpah could be a little bit of a twist on that, with Samuel being viewed as being there to settle a dispute between the Lord and his people, or perhaps what it means is that the people, when they're getting, when they're getting right with God, it sparked a desire to make things right with one another. And Samuel says, well, we're going to be here as long as it takes. Let's, let's, get it, let's get it figured out. Now, in the original invitation to this gathering, Samuel said that he'd pray for them, but that became a lot more urgent when the Philistines crashed the party. 
Remember, the Philistines are the overlords. The Israelites are their underlings in this time period. So when Israel gathers, I mean, the Philistines are going to make sure that this is not some effort to rally the people into some kind of revolt. I mean, they're going to come in. They're going to squash that pretty quickly. So um, no, doesn't seem to be any worries there. Verse 7 says, the people of Israel were afraid. Uh, they, they were not defiant. They were afraid, and with good reason. Remember that, that battle from 20 years earlier, just back a few chapters, chapter 4, there were 30,000 Israelites killed in that battle. And now gathered at Mizpah, I mean, they're like sitting ducks. I mean, they need help. So, verse 8 again, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Now, remember, that uh, idea of saving him from the Philistines came up in uh, verses, verse 3 and 4. Samuel said, hey, he'll, he'll save you. That was kind of a more of a general idea, you know, you know the, kind of the general oppression of, of the Philistines. He's going to rescue. Like, now it's, it's getting real, people. They're, they're coming, and they've got swords. They're coming, and they're going to kill you. Okay, we need, him, we need the God to save us right now. So Samuel, verse 9, took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Samuel acts as a mediator. He offers up a burnt offering as a sacrifice of atonement. A sacrifice acknowledges, understand, the sacrifice acknowledges God's view of sin. And what's God's view of sin? Sin deserves death. Sin brings death upon itself. And so as this lamb is killed, that's, that's what sin requires. But the good news is as, that is off, as the life is offered up, once the price has been paid, the relationship is restored. Verse 10, as, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. We can hardly appreciate how, just how dramatic this is. The Israelites were not assembled for battle. They were gathered for worship. This is, this is like, hey, we were all there for the church picnic, and then suddenly... The, 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 the tanks start coming over the hill. That, and yet, the Lord won the battle. Now, you, you probably don't remember this line from Hannah's prayer back in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Hannah said this, he will, speaking of the Lord, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Oh, there it is right here. And you may say, oh, okay, that's, a, that's an interesting little connection. Chapter 2, Hannah says thunder, and chapter 7, the Lord thunders, and he wins the battle. But what, what, you really want to, what we really want to know is, is this how I get God to help me when I'm in trouble? I mean, it, it kind of sounded like a step-by-step formula there, but in, in verse 3 that Samuel gave him, put away your foreign gods, direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you. He will rescue you. He will save you. Now, unless you are actually facing literal armies of Philistines, 
we're going to have to do at least some kind of transposition here, right? We're going to have to, okay, well, how does this, how does this describe our experience? Well, the most important connection is our own relationship with God. First and foremost, that's what is being dealt with in this passage. Repentance, confession of sin, calling out to God in faith through and with the sacrifice for sin. Yes, these, these are essential ingredients to a saving relationship with God. And instead of remaining estranged from God, we are brought back to God through the one he sent. Here, it's Samuel. For all of us, it's Jesus. Not the prophet Samuel, but now it's Jesus Christ, God the Son, who, who offered himself as the sacrifice of atonement, who intercedes for us in prayer even now before the Father, so that the very greatest threat that you and I face, a guilty verdict before the judge on the last day, is no longer a threat. And as the sacrifice atonement was offered on Calvary, as Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross, God thundered. The battle is over. Or as Jesus said, it is finished. Now, I understand. You might like, okay, but there's some other things I'd like God to deliver me from. I'm, you know what? I'm right there with you. I, I've got stuff that, uh, that uh, some skirmishes in my life, shall we say, some, some, some battles, some, some just enemies that keep coming back that I would like, God, would you just wipe them out? Would you just thunder, throw them into confusion, and uh, you know, send them scattering? I, I, would, I would love that. But what if there's something else that he wants to do before that? If you've been reading about revivals these past few weeks, uh, with all that's going on in Kentucky, you, you know that one sign of a true, genuine work of God is, is not just having extended worship services, but people confessing their sins before God and pursuing reconciliation with one another. And are there some battles like that? We, God, would you come in and do some, some work like that? Would I'd love to see some long-term feuds, some persistent headbutting, some some relationships that seem beyond repair to melt away in a true work of renewal. Of our relationship with God. It's got to start there. Before we go back to the text, just understand this. Turning to God in confession and faith is not a way to get stuff. I mean, that, that's just treating him like all those other little Canaanite gods. Just, like, how, what do I do to get stuff, God? Give me the steps. Give me the, give me the words to say. We have sinned before. But okay, do I have to say? I'll say whatever I have to say to get what? No, no that's not it. There's, there are these things that must be done as the way to salvation in Christ. In Christ, yes, confession of sin, repentance, faith, his perfect sacrifice. But the thing of it is, you will not, 
all of those things that we think we want, all the stuff that we want from God to, to do for us, just focus on getting to Him, on being with Him, and let Him sort out the stuff that you think you need. That's where we're at. Let's read the rest of the chapter, verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone after this great victory. Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For, he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and to Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This is part three, remembrance. Revisit God's grace so that his faithfulness prompts yours, your faithfulness. Revisit God's grace so that his faithfulness prompts yours. Now, all kinds of good things flow out of God's decisive victory on that battlefield. The land was restored to Israel, no more harassment from the Philistines, peace with their other enemies who didn't want to mess with them anymore, apparently. The prophet Samuel providing good leadership, good government, we could say. Okay, so how do we, how do we transpose this to us? Uh, if we had a national revival, would we be blessed like this? Okay, well, we do have to be careful in our transposition, uh, careful not to take specific promises God made to Israel and claim them for the United States. And yet, I do believe, hear me say, I do believe there would be tremendous blessing for our nation if there was a large-scale turning, returning to the Lord. But I, I also want to be quick to say, I think the best transposition, the better interpretation, doesn't move uh, directly from Israel to the United States, to modern America, uh, but from God's covenant people under Samuel to God's covenant people now under Christ. The victory God promised Israel in places like Deuteronomy and here in 1 Samuel 7 was exactly this, victory over their enemies, peace in their homeland. The victory God promises those who have been saved through Jesus Christ, people like you and me, is a victory that began at the cross and will be complete when he returns. And then we will know what it is like to live at peace. Then we will know what it is like to have our enemies subdued. The world will be ours to enjoy under the reign of our Savior. The victory that God promises the Christian does not end all suffering immediately. It does not end all conflict immediately. It does not end all strife immediately. But rest assured, folks, that peace, that shalom is coming. Now, you might say, oh, there you go again. That's convenient for you because, you know, I'm looking here for some, for some rest, some peace, some victory, and you're saying, oh, um, well, it, it sort of started 
you know, back with Jesus, and, and it's going to come, I promise, I'm sure, like, that's, uh, come on, give me more than that. And I was like, well, understand, what has God promised? What did God promise Israel? What has God promised you? He has, we can be very confident in what he has promised to do for us. We don't have a right to claim something that he has not yet said he will do. Be assured, though, it is coming. That's where we have to walk by faith. But here's the help that we need for walking by that kind of faith, and that we do have that in this passage as well. How do you keep pressing on when you don't see the final victory yet? How do you keep going when you don't know when that victory is going to come? The final victory. Now, I, I, God's, God gives us blessings and encouragement and victories along the way, but, but okay, but that final victory, when we have that, this kind of peace, uh, uh, okay, we got to wait for that, you're saying to me? This is where we see the real significance of verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. And maybe you've got a footnote there in your Bible. Ebenezer, the Hebrew word, means stone of help. Eben, stone, ezer, ezer, help. Now, either it means God is the strong rock who gives help, or this stone, this is the stone of help, this is this stone marks the time where we saw God help us, God save us, God deliver us. Either way, the, the stone is a literal monument of God's grace. I mean, you know what monuments are for? They're, they're visible reminders so that we never forget. If you've been to Washington, D.C., the place is just littered with monuments. Uh, there's monuments to great uh, leaders who served our nation, great, uh, to, to the many soldiers and sailors who have sacrificed themselves for us. This stone was to be a visible reminder, and, and the, the label he puts on it, the reason why he says he puts up this stone of help, till now, God has helped us. Now, in, in English, that, that doesn't, it may sound a little off. Like, till now? Like, well, so far God's helped us. We'll see. Uh, that's, that's not what he's saying so far. Uh, it's, it's not like, well, who knows if, if he's going to show up next time. No, this, this monument is meant to be a history lesson with the future in mind. The point is that if he's been faithful to us when we needed him before, that monument marks from, from all the time up to this moment, boom, we're going to put the stake in the ground, we're going to put the stone in the ground, all this way up to now, he has been faithful to us. And if, he, if you look back at that monument, every time you see that, you can be confident that he's going to be faithful to you again and again. Maybe you remember the original lyrics to the old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every, Every Blessing, that says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. I mean, I've gotten, I've gotten here because you've helped me, God, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Th those believers that wrote that in the 1800s or maybe earlier than that were, were, had that same vision. They understand, okay, I know in Christ, the promise is not, oh, victory, every, every day is victory. No, they, they, just, they know that I'm looking at the ways that God has, has been faithful in the past, and I know I still got some battles to fight, but he's going to take me safely home because of, that, because of that monument 
to God's grace. Looking to God's faithfulness in the past leads to us to expect him to be faithful in the future, and that encourages us to stay faithful to him. So we can sing with another song, not quite as old as Come Thou Found, but I, I bet some of you know this one. We've come this far by faith, leaning on the Lord, trusting in his holy word. He's never failed us yet. Oh, we can't turn back. We've come this far by faith. Last night, Katie was, uh, and she was not helping me with the sermon, but she did. Um, she was just going back through some old photos and things that she's held on to for, uh, for a number of years and uh, found a, showed me a letter that she's had at least 25 years, probably longer. It was from a dear uh, Christian woman who had been a friend, uh, a mentor. This woman had been single all her life. She was uh, old at this point when she wrote this letter. And she was uh, reminding, this letter was written to Katie, reminding Katie in her single years to find her satisfaction in the Lord before any other relationship. Katie said the first time she read that letter, she threw it across the room. But she kept it because God has used it in a monument, as a monument in her life. Do you have things like that that you've kept? Do, do you have things that maybe you should keep or should just recognize, you know what, that reminds me of that time. Maybe it's not an object that you can hold on to that you can keep on the shelf. Maybe it's a, a spot, a place. Like this is where I was when, when God was just, he reached down and, and got me. Or this is, this is where we were when God provided for us in a powerful way. And you know what? Every time I, I go past that place, every time I go there or, 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 or see that spot, I remember that. I remember that moment and how I felt and, and what God did Maybe you need to make a monument or, or at least write things down. Maybe it's not a, a monument, an object, or a place. Maybe it's just a journal that you, you keep a record so you can go back and see what God has done for you. Write it down. All his, a record of God's blessings, his faithfulness, answered prayers. And I can tell you, if you don't have any of those things, we have something that we are about to do in this service that is a memorial that all of us have, that all of us share. I'm going to ask our elders who are serving uh, to, to come even now. The worship team is going to come. We're going to, we're going to make our way in just a moment to this time of a memorial. Uh, it's a monument that you can see. It is a monument that you can taste. It's something that we revisit each month. Some Christians revisit it even more often, even weekly. But it's not, understand, it's not a mere history lesson, folks, that one, sometime long ago, Jesus died and rose again, and we're supposed to remember that. It's, it's something, well, we're certainly not redoing Christ's sacrifice. No, we're not doing that either. We are here to revisit God's grace to us. And if you want to, if you want to have an example, it's like you know what? I don't have a monument. I don't have a. I don't have something to look back to, folks. We every one of us here who is who has been saved has something to look back to, of God's faithfulness. We look back to the 
to the cross, to the empty tomb, and again and again since then, we see God's faithfulness and how that prompts our gratitude, our devotion, our undivided loyalty, our faithfulness and obedience to the only God, the holy God. We love and serve him only because of what Jesus has done. This is the way of salvation that Samuel told the people what Christ has brought to us. We'll pray and then we'll share this remembrance together. God, would you meet with us now? I pray that this would be a a moment where we can, well, God, if we need to, if we need to confess sin even right now, just to say, God, I, I want our relationship that you've already accomplished in Christ, I, I want there to be nothing between us. I'm just here acknowledging, and I want to come back. I want to be able to come to this moment of renewing our relationship in a way that, that there's nothing held back. God, if there's sin that we need to confess, we're, I'm, I'm saying right now, uh, some people might be coming to faith, but I imagine most of us, if we're dealing with sin right now, it's just, it's just a matter of making sure that there's nothing between us. We're not getting, getting saved again. It's, it's, God, we just want to be, we want things to be right between, between you and me. Lord, hear our confession in this silence. And in a moment now, we will come and we will remember what you have done, the sacrifice that has made us yours, and the victory that you promise to give through Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.